Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, out of CIUT 89.5 FM, or your local community radio station. My name is David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. Indeed. Stefan will be interviewing a documentarian, a docu-seriesman, a docu-seriesentarian. Also does documentaries, so both. Okay. Uh, yeah, named Vicky Lane. Vicky Lane, uh, who has just produced or just directed a docu series called "We're All Gonna Die, Even Jay Baruchel." I'm glad that he's gonna die too, because if all the rest of us are going down, I want to make sure Jay's gone as well. I mean, if only just because it's humanitarian for Jay, it would be real rough to be the only oh, person yeah. left on Earth. Yeah, have either of you ever read The Road? I saw the movie. She should make another movie called The Road with Jay Baruchel. <laughs> And so you're discussing the series in your interview. And also about sort of how what she learned about talking to those people who sort of are staring at existential crises in the face. You know, how do people respond to the fact that, like, if you're a person who studies the supervolcano that might erupt any day and kill us all. What supervolcano <sighs> are you talking about? What are you talking oh, about? Man, the Yellowstone National Park. Oh, yeah. Every so often I'll read a tweet that references that and it's like, <laughs> oh, right. At any moment, this could all be... This could all be over. I know. <laughs> Sorry, to go to go back to the road, it's this dad and his son, and they're walking to the coast, I think, and they have a gun with a single bullet in it. And basically the whole book you're wondering, is this dad going to sacrifice his own happiness by killing his son and putting his son out of misery? Or does he kill himself? So this docuseries is like that. I mean, no, it's actually, it seems like it's much more positive. It's a little bit, it's it's much more, it's all hypotheticals. So, you know, you're not dealing with sort of the bleakness and you're more dealing with a sort of like, wouldn't that be interesting? Um, but also bad because in every one of these, it's talking about, you know, what would actually lead to the end of humanity? Not even just sort of like the partial wipeout. It's like, what would you need to wipe out all of us? And we're going to do some climate news. But first, Stefan was going to complain. Uh, just generally. That's all. Just complain. He's going to do some complaining. All right. Um, no, I, well, actually, I'm going to throw you first, Lauren, uh, because mine sort of dovetails into a larger conversation. More than just complaining, talking about how progressive institutions need to live their values. Yeah, it's a whole thing. I was thinking about it today because um, I saw some stuff on Twitter so I know I'm allowed to talk about it because it's on Twitter, but basically the National Observer, which is a publication that we know and we love and we steal from blatantly all the time. Um, they're a, a great news source based out of Canada, um, so-called Canada. And, and I believe they would classify themselves as progressive. Like I know like sometimes those terms are a little bit dubious when you get into journalism because people are like, we're journalists, we're not activists, blah, blah, blah. But I think, I think they would also argue that they are like a progressive outlet. Um, and their staff have unionized and I believe are going through collective bargaining right now. And one of the things that's on the table for this collective bargaining and is being tweeted about by those staff members is that they're trying to encourage the organization to contribute to their pension funds. And it's one of those things where it's just like the, the fact that that even has to be an ask that that has to be something that they take to collective bargaining and have to like expend energy to ask for when they're working for a progressive outlet is bananas to me because it's like, I don't know. I understand there's, there's the issue when it comes to like 
things like where like you have to live your values and you're requiring that of somebody on a personal level. Yes, that's hard. And like, that's not ever something I actually like push for that much. Like in the sense that like, I'm not going to yell at you. If you drink through a plastic straw, I'm not going to be upset with you. If you don't ride your bike to work and you drive your car, I don't really care that much, but when it's like an organization that is professing to want to push for a certain societal shift or way of operation or, or like a way of operating at a mass scale. And then they're not in turn sort of, um, observing those practices themselves. It's really annoying. And it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, if, if, if we're not going to do it, then who is, if we don't, if we don't actually practice these values that we espouse, who, who, who can we possibly expect to? if that makes sense. And I hope I'm not sounding too reductive because again, it doesn't just come down to like personal actions. And I know these things are difficult, but it's like, I don't know, something as basic as like providing your employees with pension options and and contributing to those pension funds. It's like, that's, that's such basic, just like decent practice. Like that's not even that progressive in my mind. Like that's just like something base level that you should be doing. And if you're not, I don't know, I kind of question your chops. Yeah. Where that comes to me is the ways in which by buying into these systems and by allowing yourself to be like, well, you know, we're a startup and startups don't can't always offer benefits because we have to do, you know, so to make enough money to to do that, et cetera, which of course there's always going to be limitations and pushes and pulls. But I think there also has to be an understanding that if you are an organization and as you grow as an organization and as you grow into more of, of a institution, how you treat your employees is an indication of how the world will treat its employees. And and so you have to understand that anything you are doing is in some ways building the world. And so if you're pushing for a world that is better and the world you're building is not matching those values, you know, then you're not ex- then you're not building the world or not you're not doing the work that you sort of are setting out to be doing. And you know, National Observer is one example, and it's a sort of a, a particular one because it's in, in the media space, but especially in like really, you know, avowed progressive institutions that are trying to push for these things. You know, I get stuck in how often those institutions can recreate the grind culture that is so pervasive in, you know, in capitalism and in our world that you end up in these spaces where, you know, are you grinding because it's the only way to survive or are you grinding because you're so convinced that your work is so important but either way if you're wiping out your your staff so that they have to either wash out and end up in a corporate gig or if you're going to staff so much that they are you know unable to go home and take care of their family or be with you know their friends or be a engaged member of society then you're still creating the wheel you're still moving the gears that grind people into dust that we're fighting against to stop. Yeah, and yeah, so you're still you're still replicating those really harmful capitalist structures. Exactly. Yeah. And and unless we can accept that we have to find a way to slow down because ultimately that has to be one of the answers here, right? We have to find a way to allow for everyone to slow down. That is because like if you slow down, you have fewer emissions, you know, you have better life, uh, you know, life, life experiences, you are more there for your family, you have more time for community, which is super important. You know, all of these things come from the ability to just have more time. And yet, 
that is so hard still to find in many spaces. And I would say that some spaces are getting better. You know, more and more places are moving to a four-day work week, which is, I think, a key part of this. But we're still not there in so many places. And there's still this grind culture, which is itself, I think, maybe one of the key issues that we face generally. And so for it to exist in progressive institutions means that we have no hope in getting it out of, you know, the rest of the world. Yeah. And to be clear, and I know that I, this almost doesn't need to be said, but apparently, like four day work week, that is still a like seven and a half to eight hour work day. Cause I do know a number of organizations who I talk to their staff and it's like, yeah, we're moving to a four day work week in the summer, which is great. It means we get Fridays off, but then you realize it's a four day work week, but a nine hour work day. And it's like, no, 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 that's not what we mean here. <laughs> We don't mean just shifting around those same 40 hours. It means that we need to be working fewer hours. And honestly, like when you said, it's like, we need to slow down. Like I almost wept because that's literally all I ever want to do is just like slow down. I just want to sit. I just want to sit and do nothing. To be honest, I love my job. I love the work I do. I do not dream of labor and I literally never will. Yeah. I mean, in in many ways, your job will never love you back regardless of what job it is. Um, Stole it from a book title. Good book. Um, and, and if we want to have time to do all the stuff that we say people also do, you know, like be invested in community and be engaged citizens and all these things, you can't expect them to do that on their two days of downtime when one of those days is probably doing laundry all day and only have one day left and you're like, okay, now I need to be productive on that day too. You're asking for seven days of productivity, which if anything we're, we've been told in our entire existence here on this planet is that we have been freed from that because of the glories of capitalism. And it doesn't seem that way currently. And so we have to do something else. And then further to that point, I know we're going to end this this soon, but like, not only can you not do that if you only have two days a week to rest, you can also not do that if you have to work until you're you're too sick to even get out of bed and you're too, you're too old to like function anymore. Like the, the sort of the natural extension of the idea of a four day work week is also the idea that, that your workplace needs to be contributing to your pension fund so that at a certain point you can retire and start to contribute to community in a different way and also benefit from community in a different way and just like get to rest eventually and, and live your life as you should be able to. Anyway, that was rambly and none of that made sense and I'm getting a little bit hippy-dippy, but bottom line, National Observer, if you're paying attention, pay in to your employees' pension funds. Jeez, I shouldn't even have to say that. I have a random shout-out to give, but I don't know when to give it. It's to a We didn't listener. mention that it's Earth Day, did we? We, did not, we don't have to mention that it's Earth Day. I, I'm very happy for us to ignore Earth Day, stupid. Yeah. Um, What's wrong with Earth Day? we don't have we... it reinforces the idea that like i don't know that like earth and conservation is somehow separate from the rest of the conversation it's been a useless endeavor for a long time i just don't li- i just don't like it it feels very like traditional greeny it's earth day a listeners but it's earth day i do want to shout out shout out to the earth yes straight up great okay uh, but also, Stefan, I'm talking about the Earth, the good, the good, beautiful globe. That's fantastic. That, that's that blue and green. Great. Okay. I just want to give a shout it's out. Earth Day today, and we can all enjoy the Earth together. Hashtag Earth Day. Uh, if you happen to find yourself in Owen Sound, uh, a listener sent us a 
cool and interesting way that they're tackling that they're doing Earth Day, but in a, in sort of getting trying to get people involved, but through like dancing and music and poetry and face painting. Um, it's at the Owen Sand Farmers Market from one thirty to five o'clock on April twenty third. I just want to give a shout out because a listener sent it to us and it seems like a cool opportunity. So if you're listening to this and you're in Owen Sound or available on Saturday, because maybe you also had Friday off, go check it out. We love Grey Bruce. That's where like all my family lives. So like shout out Grey Bruce County. Nice, nice. Yeah, let's show out let's show up and show out for Earth this Earth Day. We're gonna take ourselves a little break and come back with some climate news. Before Stefan's interview with the docu-series Tarion. Vicky Lane. Vicky Lane. back with the green majority canada's longest running environmental news hour full hour of earth power this earth day and we're gonna move right along into our climate change news segment beginning with uh, extinction rebellion now extinction rebellion uh popped up with protests all over the united kingdom last week Uh, protesters blockading oil facilities around the country, gluing themselves to the doors of the Department of Business, causing general disruption to daily life, trying to get the government to move away from fossil fuels, finally. Uh, There's a whole thing about scientists rebelling this time. There's a whole contingent of them as scientists, specifically being like, we are scientists and we also are going to glue our hands to the Department of Business. Um, The group Just Stop Oil led a a two-and-a-half-week coordinated campaign against 10 oil terminals in the UK. Now they've briefly paused their protest for the government to respond, after which they plan to escalate their blockades if they don't like what the government says. They were handed some kind of court injunction, but it wasn't terribly thorough, so they're sort of moving through that. Um, A new study in the journal Nature has analyzed the net-zero pledges made by countries at COP26 last year, and has concluded that if all of these pledges are carried out on time and in full, then global warming can be limited to 1.9 degrees Celsius. But the politics, the policies to implement these changes don't yet exist. I'm going to pause there for, for Stefan to say something. I did not expect this, I will say. Rarely does news that the science has brought out lead to me being like, oh, that seems more positive. But honestly, the fact that they believe that if the net zero pledges are actually made, we stay below two degrees is good news and really should highlight the importance of those of us who are in countries who have net zero pledges to ensure that we come up with strategies that will make sure we actually make those and ideally beat them, given that most of these pledges I think people would consider are not really that ambitious, you know, like, and have their own difficulties to get through. As you said, there's not 
all his policies to get there. That's a nice way of looking at it because that's not that's not how I read it when I first saw that headline last week. Maybe it's just a testament to the fact that I've uh, gone through a breakup and I'm nearly 30 hanging out at my parents' house for two months. But that's <laughs> that is that is not this. I did not have a sunny disposition when I read it. But hearing you phrase it like that vibes. Stefan's great at that kind of thing. It's all us and Jay. We're all here for Jay. You know, we're going to make it through it. No, he's going to die, too. <laughs> So, moving on, East Africa is preparing for its worst drought in 40 years. Not a lot of rain, a lot of hot weather. So, Joe Biden has reinstated a law that requires new infrastructure to take into consideration its indirect environmental impacts, like its contributions to climate change. Now, there's a Supreme Court ruling, like, the week before, saying that, in fact, we're reinstating something that Trump did which was which was that in wa- specifically water infrastructure you you cannot uh con- consider extraneous indirect impacts like it to climate change but now the Biden administration after that has now reinstated something that says that sort of all infrastructure has to so i don't know if that's specifically counter to that that they were trying to do that or or if it will affect that at all but that's what they've done uh, and a group led by Mike Pence has launched a targeted ad campaign against Biden and three Democratic congressional districts over high gas prices, arguing that drilling for more oil, more oil in the U.S. would bring down prices. Although I did read that Biden was going to increase drilling on public lands, so I don't know what exactly the campaign is about, but gas prices. And the California utility Pacific Gas and Electric is paying... Over $55 million to avoid criminal charges for two huge wildfires in the last three years that were started by its equipment. The utility still faces charges from another fire in 2020. I just want to bounce back to the Mike Pence-led argument because it strikes me as ridiculous how often a version of this argument has popped up in the past few months, ever since oil prices increased, you know, Anywhere from if we had Keystone XL, this would be better. Or if we just drilled more, this would be better. And all of these seem to forget this one of the central and most simple realities, which is that there are many different places, Saudi Arabia being one, other large oil companies being another, that could just increase production tomorrow. We have the ability to increase oil production in many places. They're not doing it because it makes them a lot more money to sell this, sell it at a higher price. So the idea that somehow, if we gave Exxon even more rights to drill more oil, that they would right now choose to make less money currently rather than saving that for a later date, strikes me as imbecilic. And on top of that, the idea that you could build this infrastructure and get it online in the timelines that this current oil you know, lack of oil due to, you know, due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine would have an impact is also ludicrous because that's not how quickly these things can get up. And so all of this is just a facade to make a claim that like, oh, we should have been more double and triple down oil. And it's all bananas. The way I think I can make it most plain for people from Canada um, is like, does everybody remember when they got a $25 gift card in the mail from Galen Weston? Cause he fixed bread prices. It's the same thing, but instead of bread, it's oil. And instead of Galen Weston, it's OPEC. <laughs> so oil prices are fixed. It very rarely has anything to do with like actual 
how much oil is flowing out of the ground and how much gas we're manufacturing. It's oil prices are fixed. Yeah. It's disconnected from reality and they charge you what they want to charge you. And yes, they use geopolitical situations as excuses for charging more for oil and gas, but like how much we actually produce, I, from what I understand has very little to do with how much you actually pay at the pump. To the point that even sometimes the price of oil is not connected to the price of gas. You know, like that even the price of it in most recently they've been showing where the price of oil has gone down, the price of gas has gone up because even the people who are selling you the gas know that you know that it might be up and therefore they can do it, which as a heads up is also what's currently going on in much of the inflation talk because everyone's under the guise that inflation is going to raise, raise prices by 7% or whatever it is now. They're also seeing, you know, the grocers of the world making record profits. And so I'm not saying there's no price increase for them, but it once again, the decision there is we want to make record profits. And so we will not keep our prices where they're at. We will continue to charge you more money. This was another installment of our ongoing series, Money Isn't Real. And so moving on to our last uh, set of stories here. In Canada, um, what does it say in the anthem? God's great land, home and native, home and native land, free yeah. something about God, God keeping, okay, whatever. God keep our land, God keep our land, glorious and free. glorious and free. There it is. A new report from the University of Waterloo's Intact Center for Climate Adaptation, which is named after Intact Insurance, I'm assuming, uh, says that extreme heat is going to risk the lives of thousands of people in Canada every year unless adaptation measures are taken. Um, they said that. Uh, it would be particularly harsh in inland BC and this whole swath of asphalt going from Windsor to Montreal. Uh, APTN reports that internal police communications from late last year show that the Mounties spent almost $1 million in less than two months protecting the coastal gas link pipeline on Wet'suwet'en land. The annual Banking on Climate Chaos report, which is a joint analysis put out by seven climate and finance groups has found that $1.4 million per minute was invested in fossil fuels through 2021, and the Canadian banks RBC and TD were at the lead of a 51% increase in tar sands investment. Calgary-based Suncor Energy is getting rid of its wind and solar investments to focus on technologies like carbon capture and storage and hydrogen and biofuels which it says are more in line with its base business in oil and gas. The CBC reports that Doug Ford's Ontario has watered down its climate targets to essentially nothing, but still feels it can reach uh, the emissions of 30% below 2005 levels by 2030, uh, since the previous Kathleen Wynne government already took some steps in this direction, and the federal government is including Ontario in programs of its own. Um, And finally, Quebec. I thought this happened before, but I read it again. I don't know what's going on, but Quebec has become the first jurisdiction in the world officially to ban new oil and gas exploration and shut down existing drill sites within three years. Yeah, so the difference was previously they said they were going to do it, and now they've actually done it. Um, But last thought, very quick for 30 Lauren, is that if you're wondering uh, about Suncor, which for a long time has gone on about how they are the leaders and the in my environmentally friendly oil and gas company, uh, are basically removing all of the energy. I believe they even started calling themselves at one point an energy company instead of an oil and gas company as a way to sort of be like, no, look, we're doing things differently. When you think about the 
the reasons why carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, and biofuels are, quote-unquote, more in line with its base business in oil and gas, it's because all of those things quite light will lead and all of those things will lead to the destruction of the earth again not saying that like there are places for all of those things in in different ways but this is let's move away from renewables which everyone knows is a required into these three other areas is a move away from really trying to dig in and take on the biggest challenge of our time Last week or a couple of weeks ago, uh, Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Gibo sent a letter to Mark Little, who's the president and chief operating officer of Suncor Energy, because Suncor um, had has been sort of dipping its toes into the impact assessment process for their baseline extension project. And Stephen, our pal Steve, was writing a letter to them, letting them know that you can continue to submit an impact assessment letter. Um, and you can continue to go through this process, but in all likelihood, unless you find a way of reducing the emissions intensity of this expansion project, it won't be approved. Um, which sort of has whispers of, of, a, of a previous similar style letter um, that Wilkinson released a couple of years ago, um, kind of telling another project the same thing. Anyway, we're gonna dig into it next week. Just thinking a lot about Suncor and their operations and how I don't quite understand what their vision for the future is because clearly they're not going down the renewables route, but they also don't have a ton of options left with the fossil fuel route because they're clearly, they're, they're starting to get rejections from the government of Canada, which is a good thing. Um, so who knows, maybe we need to have somebody on from Suncor to tell us exactly what they think their operations are gonna look like going forward. <laughs> Seems like a long shot, but we could always try. All right, with that, we'll take a break and then come back with Seven interviewing Vicky Lane. Vicky Lane about her docu series, We're All Gonna Die, and definitely Jay Baruchel along with us. We are here with Vicky Lane, 
the documentary filmmaker and director of We're All Gonna Die, even Jay Baruchel. Welcome, Vicky. Thank you so much for being here. It's I really like your your show and the podcast. I usually get it as a podcast, not on the radio, but yeah, great to be here. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for listening. So by way of introduction, can you tell us a little bit about this docu-series? Even the headline itself, We're All Gonna Die, Jay Baruchel gives us a little a sense of it, but yeah, can you dive into that? And what led you to be interested in the apocalypse? Yeah, so the docu-series unpacks six potential existential risks to humanity. So asteroid impacts, nuclear war, pandemics, which we're familiar with, but we're talking about a much more extreme version, alien invasion, supervolcanoes, climate change. It's hosted by Jay Baruchel, who some people may remember. He was the doomsayer in This is the End, warning all the Hollywood elites about the apocalypse and explaining it to people. I love him as a host because a lot of millennials may remember him as the host of popular Mechanics for Kids. And so he's been called back to hosting because the world is a lot scarier. And I think of the show as sort of popular extinction for humans is sort of what we're doing. So on a personal level, like how did I become interested in the apocalypse? Both my parents are actually environmental scientists. And when I was a kid, my dad was studying ozone depletion and going up to the Arctic and Antarctica and long range transport and all of these horrible chemicals that we're throwing up in the air and literally basically burning a hole into the sky. So as a child, that's a pretty vivid picture. And my parents ran a field institute that had a lot of scientists. So I was just surrounded from birth pretty much by conversations about how we're trashing the planet. And my dad was frequently like, you know, you better learn to chop wood because I don't think civilization as we know it is gonna be the same when you're my age. So there was kind of a baseline apocalyptic conversation that I had the privilege of being born into. And then I think as I got older, I took a, a course in my undergrad called Evolving Earth. And it was the geological history of the earth and the five times that there's just been rapid and massive declines in biodiversity. So extinction events and what causes them. And I think that was when I first had this real deep appreciation that the earth changes and can change in dramatic ways and just wipe out life as we know it quite dramatically. So there's one way to talk about this show. It's like basically about extinction events and, and how those happen and how it could happen again, or the apocalypse if it we're coming at it from a popular cultural kind of lingo. And in the show too, early in the first episode, we introduced the concept of existential risk. So that we interviewed Nick Bostrom, who coined the term not that long ago. And the, the Future of Humanity Institute, the center for this, like they did a study where academics up until that point had published more research on dung beetles and, and Star Trek than human extinction. So extinction itself, especially human extinction, is severely neglected as a kind of an academic study. So that's where I came to the show and, and learning and meeting all sorts of people who are untangling what it means and how it could happen. Yeah. I, I also know Jay Brashell from Pop Weekends for Kids. Um, yeah. And so it's funny how, how far back that goes. But I find that really interesting, partially because I think that even the idea that humans could cause themselves go to extinct probably dates back probably not that much further than the atomic bomb as we entered the anthropocene and this idea that we had begun sort of taking over 
and we are the primary drivers of the Earth, Earth's atmosphere and the Earth's habitability, it makes sense that it's you know, not that long ago that we've really even begun to think about that. And I think that's interesting because you know, we have to learn how to talk about this and we have to learn how to tell these stories and we have to learn how to convey the importance of these things to people who have had generations of storytelling traditions in which the only story really is that the earth can destroy you personally, but that you really are a small in comparison to nature, right? The sort of man versus nature kind of storytelling. And so obviously you've, you've done many documentaries for you, you sort of come back from this whole background. And so I'm curious if during your time in this show and more generally, you've dug in or thought any more about how do we tell these stories? How do we do you know, climate storytelling in a way that actually can drop people out of their shells maybe and, and sort of make them realize that, no, this is actually possible. Like the earth has been unhabitable before and it could be again. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, and I will, uh, so certainly the dawn of the nuclear age was the birth of like man-made existential risk, how we could do ourselves in. Um, but certainly like religious texts for thousands of years have been talking about the apocalypse. The religious teachings have been really fruitful in terms of like conceptualizing the end and end times. So on the one hand, we're like extremely fascinated with this possibility, but it's always sort of been in the realm of myth and religion, but not so much in the realm of science. So the importance of science storytelling is partly like why I became a filmmaker. I could just see there was such a disconnect between what my parents and their colleagues were studying and what we knew in the, the general public. And in previous films that I've made, some of the sometimes the tone necessitates a more serious tone. But with this, these are hypothetical scenarios that have never happened. So we could have more fun with it and not scare people to death to the point where they are just racked with anxiety and wanting to approach it in a more playful way that we could actually reach a, a broader audience as well. And it, well, making the show, I think the importance of storytelling is huge, actually. Even like there are two sides to the same coin. And what blows my mind in the first episode, so Armageddon and Deep Impact came out in 1996. And after that is when we started from like a government policy perspective, taking the threat of asteroid risk seriously. And they set up a whole office. They started doing the research. Like it was literally, they, they had a term for it. It was called the giggle factor. Like, so a lot of these apocalypse scenarios are like so ridiculous and like low probability, low risk that people, you get laughed out of the room as a scientist, but they're so impactful that it merits studying them and investing a bit in case of this small probability event happening. So those stories actually helped shift public funding and NASA got serious funding to start studying the issue. And like there's global coordination and there's all sorts of amazing stuff that's happening in the, the asteroid field that I don't know if they would have got there as quickly without those movies. We kind of joke too in, in the climate change episode, we actually meet an environmental scientist who does a study about like all the climate change narrative films and there's not that many. Like it's like Waterworld, which was how long ago and how terrible. And we're not doing a great job of telling the climate story and a lot of these stories to a, a broader audience. So I think, and I, I don't think we're quite there yet. We, we have to figure out a way to tell those stories better. 
Yeah. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And we've begun to see some other, you know, attempts to, to sort of come out a different way. But yeah, I do think climate does pose a specifically unique threat in the way that it's so hard to imagine or, or to create good narratives. I will say though, for anyone out there who's not read even just the first chapter of Ministry of the Future, I think is one of the best examples of, I think, a really small bit of that kind of very dark as a heads up, but really solid storytelling of, of that experience of, of it in, in some ways. But the next three questions, I think all sort of veer from the sort of big to the small, really talking about individuals and, and ourselves. And the first one is that, you know, you spent this whole series talking about to people who think a lot about things that could destroy the world. And I'm curious if you feel like you've learned anything about existential dread. You know, like these people obviously spend their whole time, like especially, I mean, especially the volcano people where it's just like, yeah, at some point volcano, boom, that'll be bad. But like, that's as much as they could really know or repair for it. So yeah, did you learn anything about existential dread? Well, okay, I'll back it up. Did I learn anything about existential risk as it relates to dread? I think what's amazing about the people that are studying it and their problems to be solved is kind of, we have these issues, we're not doing well on this, this, and this, and they're methodically trying to figure out either their specific issue or writ large, how we can advance this conversation. So that to me was like actually very hopeful and inspiring. Like I learned a lot about how well we're doing on asteroids and I'm like, yeah, we just need to do this, but in all the other ones. And even like right now we're in a moment where the nuclear threat is coming up again and it's completely terrifying. But that episode, really highlighted to me how powerful treaties can be in in reducing the number of nuclear weapons like at the height of the Cuban missile crisis you know Kennedy thought there'd be 20 nuclear states and right now we have like five six depends on some of the rogue ones but you know that was incredible so now we those treaties have been eroded so that is kind of where I come away from the show. I don't come away with more existential dread. I come away with thinking about how these people are like rationally trying to solve problems. I think, so So there's multiple ways to examine extinction. And actually we, we interviewed a wonderful reverend here in Toronto for that religious perspective. And she had this line about how, you know, we're a death denying culture. We don't really acknowledge our own death. So how can we see or even fathom the death of 7 billion people? So there's that um, kind of balance, I think, that exists in all of us, you know. For sure, yeah. And so on a, on a personal level towards yourself now, uh, this is a question I've been asking people sort of for the last like six months, sort of came out of actually the gigantic fires in BC back in August of last year. But do you personally uh, experience climate anxiety or climate grief? And, and if so, how do you manage it? Well, first of all, I'm anxious generally. And I don't know if making a show about the end of the world for three years helped manage that. There's multiple factors that make it anxious. Just trying to figure out how to do a Zoom interview, frankly, caused me much grief. But uh, like on a serious note, like, the story of what we're doing to the planet has been with me for a long time. So I feel like I kind of got a jump on 
anxiety or, or dread about the future and where it's where we're headed. I think where I feel emotions, particularly around this, is so my first feature was about the impact of a De Beers mine on the First Nations community of Attawapiskat and just spending time in that community, um, realizing that there's so many forms of like environmental racism that are affecting people's health. So I think that's where I feel like a tremendous amount of grief for people that are already feeling the impacts of various forms of environmental destruction and we're not taking care of them. So, you know, the autism rates are so high, we can't even pass like an environmental racism bill. So that's sort of where I, I feel grief and sadness when I speak with young people and they're afraid about having kids in the future. So I, I feel that. And I think there are moments when I'm in places that I've grown up and there's like no more frogs, I can't hear them. Or, like, and when I used to hear them a lot. So I think that's when I feel like these moments of grief. So that technically that's more environmental melancholia that I experience. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's totally fair. So the second half of the question is how you manage it. Right. How I manage it, I guess it's important to talk about it and to try and personally how I'm trying to manage it is, you know, you try and take action and you try and find new ways of telling these stories and raising awareness and talking to people about it, sharing information and, and just trying to reach people. So I, I manage it by working harder, <laughs> which maybe I need a vacation. We're, we're very pro vacation on the show, so you should definitely have a vacation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, but obviously also taking action is a, a very common response, I think helps, you know, work through it as well. And so the next question you, you sort of answered, I think a part of it earlier when you talked about how the scientists sort of engage, but I, I want to come back to it for a second. Um, because again, you did spend all this time, three years, as you just said, working through the series. I'm curious if you have any insights on the ways in which people will try to downplay these kinds of massive risks and or how those who stare them in the face, like these scientists, sort of respond to them. Because like with climate change, I think those are the two things, right? You've got the people who are really trying to convince themselves that it's not a worry at all. And then you have the people who are like, no, 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 we know this is a worry, but I can't sit idly. So I have to find a way to face it and keep working. What I think is actually more alarming to me than our inability to kind of stare some of these in the face is particularly on the climate issue. So my mandate was to go in and find the most apocalyptic climate scenario. And, you know, we do have the capability from my research to get up to 13 degrees Celsius. The likelihood of us getting there is very, very unlikely. And when I was going into the research, I'm like, find me a scientist who's going to talk about six, get me to six. And it's very hard actually to find a scientist who will talk about that worst case scenario and to tell that story of how, how we could get to six and what that looks like, because three is really bad. So I guess that doesn't really answer your question, but I think even scientists, when it comes to how real, like it's extremely, extremely low probability, but it's probably more probable than like an Independence Day situation, frankly. So do I have any insights? I think 
Well, yeah, I don't know if I'm allowed to give spoilers because the series hasn't come out yet. But one of the most shocking things for me making the show is often how much scientists can be, especially on the pandemic front. We started filming in October 2019, so about three months before the first cases. And we filmed this uh, coronavirus simulation in New York City that brought together world health leaders, the WHO was a sponsor, and they were hashing out a fictional pandemic of a novel coronavirus. And the way it plays out, they simulate the misunderstanding and the misinformation that happens on social media and how they react to it. And I, I got to choose in terms of who was there, who I'd follow that day. And I was like, I'd like to follow the head of the Chinese CDC, please. And so I interviewed him before and after. And he was so much, he was like, we're not ready for a pandemic. We have these meetings and meetings and he got upset. He's like, we're, we're constantly talking. Like even in the meeting, he's like, we don't have a system to be properly coordinated. And, and there's people from the UN that are there and they're like, uh, you know, the UN could help coordinate, but we run into this sovereignty issue every time. So they're, they're literally role-playing what's about to happen. And he's, he's coming out of that. He's like, I know we have WHO. I know we have United Nations, but it's not enough. He says that to me. He's like, we're not ready. And we just got to share the data. The virus travels so fast. So it's like, we know these things and then they just happen. Like the system itself, the experts know. And then some, like the wheels just start going and, and the, the script plays out exactly how we kind of are expecting it to. So to me, that's like, yeah, that continues to baffle me that the head of the Chinese CDC said that. Yeah, fair. And, and like right before everything plays out. And I, I think that sort of dovetails interesting to the next question, because I think what that speaks to me is that we can walk very clearly into disaster. We can 100% know that disaster is coming. We walk right into it. And one of your episodes, as we've already discussed, is on climate change. And so I'm curious, what would you say the most important thing that you learned from that work uh, on that episode was? And, or what would you want viewers to take to heart from it? So the climate change episode is our last episode and we build to it. I actually feel like I take away things from every episode that inform kind of my understanding of climate. But I think the main takeaway from the series and from the, the episode really should be like the atmosphere is essential for life. Massive shifts in climate are pretty much what kills everything every time. And so with an asteroid impact, it's not the impact, it's the winter conditions because all the soot and all the debris is flown into the air and we, nothing grows for eight years. With nuclear war, it's the same thing. There's a nuclear winter. It's not the bombs and the fires, it's the, the messing of the atmosphere. And the same thing with a huge volcano. It's not the eruption and the lava and the hellfire coming out of that. It's the climactic shift. And those, those examples are all a cooler climate, but it just should highlight, and the previous mass extinctions are, were volcanic in nature, but actually not from kind of super volcanoes, but from a Siberian traps and the emissions, greenhouse gas emissions that warmed the planet. Uh, and it's like, hello, so massive shifts in climate are what do in species 
and we are accelerating it at a level that is unprecedented in human history and the earth's history like the speed at which we're going leads to actually like there's so much we know about climate science and i think that's when the episode itself you know that was kind of a challenge to me hearing notes from execs they're like we hear about climate change every day like what are you gonna do differently on this one and i think that was sort of like okay well, let's focus on what we don't know because there's so much that we're just are unknowns at the moment that science doesn't know how much carbon or when we might pass some critical tipping points and create feedback loops and you know if we melt all the methane like how much carbon is gonna go up how much warming is there gonna be like that's why we have this huge band in terms of climate projections and we don't know the rate of human response there's a lot we don't know but even the aliens episode like should teaches us about where we're we are right now like there is not another planet b there's a very narrow window of atmospheric conditions that allow life to thrive and you know and all the, the speed of discovery of these planets is crazy and we've yet to really find another earth that has anything remotely close to the magic we have in our atmosphere here so I think that's the main takeaway of the series and for that episode is just like, you know, the atmosphere and stable climate is actually extremely important. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. We just discovered recently that there's, I think, water underneath one of Saturn's moons and maybe we can live there. That's our current other hope. Maybe. <laughs> um, which is not great. So... Second last question. I always like to ask this question on anyone who's worked on a big project. You know, so you've spent three years of this going around, talking to people, having experience. Was there a moment during the series that stuck out to you that maybe this doesn't even show up in the video? Maybe it's just you standing or talking to someone or having experience that you found particularly striking that you sort of will hold on to and remember? Well, certainly the head of the Chinese CDC saying that to me, I don't, I still can't square that you know, sharing the data and what happened. We like eventually got the data, but not really. So I think it's sort of the failure of institutions. And what strikes me, and he was like, we need something to be really coordinated. And and whatever we have now is is not enough. And what what goes in its place? I think that's a question that's leaving me, but you know, there's in asteroids, there's the planetary defense officer and he heads up the planetary defense coordination office just because coordination is so key. And like something about, you know, asteroids is a much simpler problem to solve to be fair, but they, they kind of got that like, no, it's actually about global coordination and cooperation. And especially with these, extremely complex threats like we need to find a way to be better at sharing data and information and there's a lot we don't know still it's still like a relatively new discipline and another moment that is striking for me the alien invasion episode is not going to be what people think I actually it's one of my favorite episodes and I think it's what that we talk about this concept called the Fermi paradox where statistically speaking like we should have found life by now or they should have found us and we haven't and it's just shocking that we are potentially 
alone or we just haven't or they're so far 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 away other intelligent life that we haven't met them yet and that is actually one of the scariest things for existential risk is actually the fact that we have not found alien life because it just goes to show that or intelligent life will probably find some form of like bacteria mat somewhere but the ability to travel intergalactically like the fact that the sky is so silent shows us just how far it is how hard it is to survive as like an advanced civilization and that if we do find evidence of a deceased civilization that's even scarier too because it's like you reach a point like the human species were were so young like as a species relative to the dinosaurs i should have that stat up closer but like the dinosaurs were around several times longer than we were and to think about living another 20 million years, like, do you think we're going to live another 20 million years as a species? Like, do you? 20 million? I mean, yeah, that's a fair, that's a fair question. I could see us going in waves, you know, mm -hmm. like we have a huge event that doesn't wipe out the human population, but decreases it a lot in some way. And then humans come back. I think humans are quite resilient. So it would take a, a really catastrophic failure on our part to totally wipe ourselves out. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's fair. Like we've lasted only 10,000 years and we've gotten to, oh man, we have like six different ways we could destroy ourselves. And the idea that you could now make what that times a hundred or 200 to get to, you know, 10 million years is hard to imagine. Yeah. So I think that's striking is what the search for alien life tells us about ourselves as a species and the fragility of our species is just how hard it is for, you know, we can't go to another planet. It's never going to happen. And so far we have not found one that has that narrow band of what we need to survive. So I think that is really striking to me. Yeah, fair. I will. I will try to sleep tonight. Thank you so much. Um, uh, <laughs> so you. folks have now heard this and they want to check out the show or learn more about yourself. How can they do that? Yeah. So the series we have actually your listeners, if you're in Toronto, we are premiering two episodes in person on the 29th for hot docs. And we're going to be there for a live Q and a, so please come out. We're showing the first two episodes on asteroid Armageddon and nuclear catastrophe. And so that's at Hot Dogs. And then the next day on April 30th, it's going to be on Crave. So you can get it there. And if you want to stay informed about me, um, you can follow me on Twitter, Victoria Lee Lane, it's spelt lean. So that's why I went for lean, but pronounced lane. And, or Vicky Leaks is my Instagram where I post some stuff about the show and my work. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Vicky Lane, spelt lean, pronounced lane. Mm -hmm. The do a documentary filmmaker and director of We're All Gonna Die, even Jay Baruchel. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Mm -hmm.